Uh, let me see here. Number one, in Bettner's words, only a truly human, human person could suffer and die. Only a truly divine. divine person could give that suffering infinite value. So we all got that one, apparently. Number two, then. By incarnation, we mean the second person of the Godhead was transformed into a human. False. 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 So what should it be? He took on. Okay, so he added humanity to himself, took on a body that was prepared for him. Transformation would indicate that he ceased being God and became human, which would not help us. Good. In the kenosis of what did Christ empty himself? Nothing. Like what he allowed himself to be put to death by men. Okay. Yeah, it just said he humbled himself. Humbled himself. Right. Yeah. So we suggested that there really isn't a substance of which he emptied himself per se. That's uh, an idiom for humbling oneself. Although you're you're right, it is a it's a humbling to the point of death. So it's it's not as though you're wrong there, but but. So that was, so that was our, that was our conclusion there. He couldn't empty himself of his divinity or of his attributes or even the independent exercise of those attributes. Rather, he simply he humbled himself, uh, which again the lexicon support. And then number four, the primary purpose given in Scripture for the incarnation was to die for sinners and save from sin. And say. Notes said, "Okay, yeah, we. This was an opinion. Well, it wasn't. It wasn't. I mean, we did have reasons for it. Uh, We did say that if if we're talking in terms of sheer numbers, the uh, the that answer would be correct. But if we're talking in terms of logical priority and temporal priority." We said that would be false. So primary, in that in that sense, the primary reason would be what? Right. So to give mankind an everlasting, visible revelation of the normally invisible God. So, so that's right. Yeah. So we suggested that had sin not occurred, which is really a you know, a, a possibility contrary to fact. Uh, that there still would have been an incarnation. In fact, there may have been a temporary incarnation already ongoing in the uh, daily walk of God with Adam in the garden in the cool of the day. So, so that was that was our. So it's not so much. I think it's more than just an opinion piece. It's 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 more okay. Primary. When I say primary, I'm talking about objectively primary. Um, and I think we can say that prime, the, the objectively primary thing was to reveal God. I guess I, yeah, I guess I should say opinion. But yeah. Someone might debate that. Yes, it could be debated, certainly. Uh, but uh, I think we have some good reasons for thinking in those terms. Okay? Well, good. So we have uh, gone through three reasons of the six why God became man, or took on flesh. First, of course, is this one we just mentioned, to provide mankind a visible and everlasting revelation of the ordinarily invisible God, to die for sinners, save from sins. This is the one which, there's there's the greater volume of texts that say as much. Thirdly, to give mankind his own eternal life, by which I mean here his act of obedience, 
uh, his human obedience to the law of Christ, which is imputed to our account just as surely as our sin is imputed to his, making us suitable not only to escape hell, but also to merit heaven. So his his obedience is done on our behalf, and we mentioned that that's often the case in in even in, even in normal human jurisprudence. That yeah, even if someone pays his debt to society, there still are some things that are out of reach for that person because you know the commit he did not he was he he committed a felony, and there's just certain things that. You can't get past that. You, you, are, you don't have the positive merit then to run for certain offices, for instance, or to vote. Um, and so we said that that's perhaps an analogy that could be made. Christ's death is not enough for us to get us to get us into heaven. Christ's death is enough to keep us out of hell, <laughs> but it's not enough to get us into heaven. What we need to get into heaven is positive righteousness, positive merit. And the only way we can get that is through the what we call the active obedience of Christ. So he shares with us his eternal life. Then I think we're on to new material here on page 14, now number 4, if I'm correct. Is that where I, we cut Did off? Did you yeah. say that the gets kind of mixed up in that yes. aspect? Yes. Just, just in that point? Yes. Yes, they are. Um, because there's, there's this idea that we have to sort of complete, well, actually both, aspects of that Mm -hmm. Um, that Christ's obedience unto death was enough to take care of the sins we have committed up till this point but doesn't cover anything beyond that and then that the positive obedience that we do is something we actually have to do ourselves and so we, we, we earn then standing as it were in heaven by our by our works so yes Number four, fourth reason here. He became human so that he could know human life from the inside by personal experience and thus to fulfill more perfectly his roles within the triune Godhead. And uh, we see this, for instance, in the, uh, in the, uh, in his role as high priest. And again, I, I again, I've, Remember, I've, I've gone through all of the texts in the, in the New Testament that give some sort of reason. I came so that uh, this is the reason I came, or some, something of those nature. And so here, here, are, here are some given. Only a human could be a perfect high priest. He had to be made like his brothers. I must not be using the NIV there. I don't think brethren is... NIV. I'm, I'm sure, not sure what happened there. So he had to be made like his brothers in all things so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. Okay, so the reason it, he became like his brothers is so that he could be the high priest that he needed to be in things pertaining to God and to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So he's an outstanding priest, does more than your average priest could possibly do, because he actually was put through the same circumstances that we are, so not only is he able to make amends, but he's also able to understand and that's you know that's something that's 
quite valuable. You know, he he actually understands what we're going through, the the the, the temptations we we faced, uh, how difficult it was to uh, to be obedient, and how hard how easy it would be to sin. And so he's he's got that in in his mind. As we're going to see here, that going is going to then not only equip him to be a good high priest, but also a good judge. Uh, then 1 Timothy 2.5, there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He is the one who, in the terms of Job 9, is able to put his hand on me and upon God and arbitrate between us because he actually has his foot in both, in both, both natures. He is both God and human, and so he is able uh, to represent each side faithfully to the other. Then also, only a human can be a perfect judge. It says here the, the, that the Father gave to Jesus authority to judge because he is a son of man. And I, I, I you can see here, I've, I, I put an, an A here, an indefinite article here. Uh, recognize that when you look at the scriptures, um, there are sometimes where you see Son of Man with an article, sometimes when you see Son of Man without an article. When you see him with with the article, it does seem like this is almost a title for his messiahship. He is the Son of Man. Uh, it seems like that title is used for him, particularly when he is doing messianic miracles and such that establish who he is. He is the son of man. This is a this is a, apparently a title for him. It almost actually points to his deity. However, if there is no article, he is a son of man. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, C.S. Lewis uh, Chronicles of Narnia. Um, they're they're called sons and daughters of men. The, the four the four children they're called sons and daughters of men. Uh, which is another, which is just sort of a fancy way of saying they're humans. Okay, um, and this is the same thing is true here because he is a son of man, because he is human. God gives him the authority to judge. Okay, and so probably here, uh, pointing to the fact that because he is human, he understands the hearts and souls and minds of those who have sinned against him. And so, when it comes to the to the bema seat, and uh, you know, or 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 worse, the great white throne, and somebody would say to him, you know, hey, yeah, I sin, but I'm only human. What's the response that Jesus makes? So am I. Yeah, so am I. I am too, and and I didn't have your problems. Um, and so, so he he is then equipped to be an appropriate and objective uh, judge because of his experience in, with humanity. So, by becoming a human, he is he is better suited to be a high priest and a judge uh, as as God. Now, it doesn't mean that he couldn't have been a high priest and judge without becoming human. But these experiences as human make him better equipped, the best of the three members of the Trinity, to be the high priest and the judge on our behalf. Okay. 
We also find that he came to give us an example. Sometimes this is, sometimes because of the abuse of this point, some have sort of suppressed this into into non-existence. You know, did we talk about that book in his steps in here? Like, I'm having trouble here remembering because I'm teaching I'm teaching this in seminary and teaching it here, and I can't remember what I say where my my mind is going here on me. Uh, so so there's a there's a book came out. Uh, are you familiar with the book in his steps? Is that a to ring a bell here. A fellow by the name of Charles Sheldon wrote it. He's a classic uh, theological liberal. Wrote it around the turn of the century, and he wrote it as a defense of liberal theology. Um, uh, in it, we have these two guys uh, who live in this town in New England. It's a fictitious town. Uh, but he, they live in this town in in New England, they see how corrupt it's becoming, how how terrible things have become, and they determine uh, that they are going to. You know, they're reading in in Peter and and find Second Peter two. Christ left us an example that we should follow in His steps, and so there's the title of the book in His steps. And by doing this, if they could do this faithfully. They wanted to see what would happen in this town. So they adopted this mantra. You'll know this one. What would Jesus do? Okay. Okay. And so that's, that's where that phrase comes from. What would Jesus, it comes from this book that was written about a hundred years ago now. Um, so now it's, you know, it's bracelets and all kinds of paraphernalia here. And you uh, said turn of the century. I'm thinking. Turn of the last century, I should say. So about a hundred years ago. I'm sorry. Yeah, I guess I have to cl- clarify that now. We've been using turn of the century for so long to mean something, something. What? Yeah, I guess millennials especially will think. What's near? I don't even. I don't even remember the last century. <laughs> so yeah, and and so the the idea was then that if we do what Jesus intended in his atoning life and death. If we just follow in his steps and do what he did, act like Jesus, ask the question, what would Jesus do, that, that, that this would be societally transforming. And that's the story of the book. Uh, they, this, this idea spreads, and the town is fundamentally transformed morally, ethically, uh, because they decide to, to follow these instructions, to follow in his steps. Now, in their understanding that was the totality of what Christ came. Okay. Just to give us an example that we should follow in his steps. We'll call talk about this later as the moral influence view of the atonement. The only reason Christ came was to give us an example, not to take away our sins, but give us an example of how we ought to live. And you know, it's sort of a, a, a moralistic kind of thing. We we pull up ourselves up by our bootstraps and act good um, and and make God happy as a result. Um but because of the abuse of that, some who are orthodox say, "Let's let's let's forget this whole idea of following in his steps." Well, that I mean, that's a legitimate reason why Christ came, so that we might follow in his steps. It's not the totality of the reason he came, but it is a reason, and I think it's it's well worth putting in here, number five in our outline. But it's still here as a as a as a serious point, and we find that he's an example of what we ought to be now. The one who says he abides in him ought to walk himself in the same manner as he walked. Christ suffered for you, giving, a, giving a, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. 
And then also, he gives us an example of what believers will be hereafter. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Okay, so that gives us hope and actually some data about what heaven's going to be like and what our existence is going to be like. I think we mentioned this last time, that our pretty much the totality of what we know about the resurrection body uh, comes from what we see about Jesus. We really don't know much about the resurrection body, except that Jesus had one, and we can sort of get a sense of perhaps some of the things that it will be like uh, when we when we get to heaven. Although we're always a little bit we're always a little bit behind uh, in our knowledge. Don't know everything that we could know. Then finally, the last reason, and this is perhaps an odd one. I, I told you I was following Charles, uh, uh, Alva J. McLean's outline here. This is not his point. But uh, when I went through my study of all the, all the places in the New Testament which said why Jesus came, I tried to put them all into these slots, and I used his outline, and then and, and I had about four or five of them left over that didn't really seem to fit in any of them. And so I, I made a, a sixth category here. So this is mine. If the error's here, it's all mine. I'll take I'll take responsibility for it. But then here I here I put it in to set in motion the long process of establishing universal rectitude. What do I mean by that? Well, there's a number of verses that are often overlooked when we talk about why Jesus came because they don't resonate with, with us all that well. Matthew 10, 34 to 36. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come for this reason. This is the reason I've come. To turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. This is why I have come. And he says the same thing in Luke 12. I have come to bring fire on the earth. Do you think I brought to to bring peace? Came to bring peace? No, I tell you, but division. Okay, so these are these are startling to us, and we don't really think of these as the reason just that Christ came. But realize that what he's doing is not just coming to bring bring some sort of a vague general peace to everyone, but to set things straight. And and along the way, that's going to create conflict, okay? And and we ought to expect that, and we shouldn't be startled that when we follow Christ that those kinds of things will happen because there, there are people that are running straight at the wall of, or a cliff, or the, you know, the, the yawning mouth of hell, that's what it is, Thinking that Jesus has come to help them all and just just be a nice, happy guy, and and you're just clashing with them, and so there is a long road where where you're actually saying no, 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 Jesus came for this reason, not for the reason you think he came, and if you don't turn yourself around, this is going to be a problem, and so it's in this context of following Christ as his disciple, and it and it sometimes means that hey, if <laughs> If your father and your mother and yea, your wife also are running towards the yawning mouth of hell, you try and drag them away from the edge, but at the end of the day, you don't let them drag you in. <laughs> you keep going the other direction. And that creates conflict. And even if you're trying to drag them, you know, that's going to create conflict you know, as you try and drag them out. Uh, 
And so, so this is this is something that God and and it's it's towards an end, you know, where God actually sets things straight. Uh, but there's conflict on the way. Glory to God in the highest, the angel said, and on earth peace to men upon whom His favor rests. This is one of the more mistranslated or more famous, more famously mistranslated verses in the New Testament. It's gotten into a bunch of Christmas songs, right? Because it's what the angels sang when Jesus came. Was it normally read, peace on earth, goodwill towards men? So the, the idea is, oh, Jesus came to make everybody peaceful and happy and, and good, good nature towards each other. But that's not what the passage, it, 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 it's a bad translation. Probably what we should think in terms of is glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men of good will. If I can, if I can put it, so you can see where the where the the subtlety of the shift is, to peace to men of good will. That is to peace peace to men upon whom his favor rests. So when Christ comes, he is he is coming to bring peace, not to everybody. He's coming to bring peace to those who are seeking it in the right way. He's not bringing peace to those who are seeking it in the wrong way. He comes to bring conflict to those. And that's what he says in John 9. Don't think I came... I came into the world so that the blind will see, and those who think they see will become blind. I'm going to set things the way they ought to be. Acts 17. For a time... God has overlooked the ignorance of men, but now, in the aftermath of his incarnation and resurrection, he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day in which he will judge the world with justice. So Christ comes in his incarnation, dies, rises again, and puts an expiration date on the universe. Sets a day in which he will will judge the world. So it puts a time... You've got to get things turned around, and before that date. Um, and so there's there's this there's this sense in which not everything about Jesus' uh, incarnation, his his first advent, is all happy for us. There, it's also going to create conflict, and that's okay. That's that's anticipated. That's expected. Don't lose heart when conflict occurs. Christ actually said this is what was going to happen. This is why he came. Because there's going to be an antithesis. You're going to, this information is going to put you at odds with people. And if you're not at odds with anybody in the world, then, then we've got a problem going on. Yeah. There's, a, there's an old fellow, he used to go, I was up Northland, Baptist Bible College before it closed. And, uh, uh, there was an old missionary who retired. His name was Morgan Roth, uh, and uh, and he uh, he sort of he retired, couldn't continue on the field, and sort of decided he wanted to retire where there were young people and he could sort of mix with them. And he was a good guy, um, and uh, you know he used to greet. He was he was a tricky fella, and he would sometimes say, "How's the world treating you?" And, you know, the, the people who, if you hear it for the first time, they always fell for it. And they would say, yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, they're treating me well. And he said, that's too bad. Because, you know, if you're following Christ, you'll face persecution. 
And so if you, if the world's treating you well, there's a problem. <laughs> and he, he always said it in a very good-natured way. And but uh, but uh, there, but there is. I mean, there is a problem here if the coming of Christ and the message of the gospel leaves you with totally without conflict in all of the all of your areas, your your whole walk of life. There there needs to be conflict, and and I think this is that's what I mean by this last point, which is. Perhaps a little harder to follow. Okay, any thoughts on that? And then finally, here we find that the permanence of the incarnation. Uh, Hebrews two, we just read that. Then, if you go down to chapter seven, he had to make his brethren like he. Uh, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he could be a faithful high priest. Then we find in chapter 7, he holds this priesthood permanently. That is, he remains the God-man permanently. He is the ideal priest forever because of his permanent constitution. And then 1 Timothy 2.5 again, there is, I'm emphasizing that verb this time, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So the point is not as that there was at one point in history a guy who understood, but rather there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, one who continues as man, Christ Jesus. Okay? So this is a permanent. Again, we remember we said earlier, the humanity is not part of the kenosis because he retains his humanity after the kenosis is reversed. Okay? And so we, we understand him to hold his humanity forever. Okay? So that's the incarnation of Christ. I'm going to switch gears now as we sort of transfer over to this discussion of the deity of Christ. Uh, but before we get there, we want to talk about uh, sort of the, you know, the, the sort of the tricky question is how it happened. You know, how how is it that uh, the the divine Christ could make this transition successfully without losing something? And part of the answer here is the virgin birth of Christ. And so that's what we want to talk about tonight. You can see here that the virgin, this question of the Old Testament, uh, we start with the Old Testament, and uh, there's a question as to whether there's any indication in the Old Testament that there is a virgin birth. Some would point to Genesis 3. Christ is called here the seed of the woman, might possibly imply that a man is not involved in his conception. I'm not sure that, that that's something that absolutely follows from that. I, I don't think anybody actually picked that up reading their Old Testaments. Maybe. But I, I'm, I'm really doubtful of that. So I'm, I'm sort of dismissing that. There's another one, though, that's uh, much more well-known. Sing about it in the of the uh, <clears throat> Angels Messiah and all that. So what should we do with this passage in Isaiah 7? Um, and it's one of those 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 things. It's there's a lot of debate as to what we should do with Isaiah seven. I want to talk you through both sides of it and uh, come down with a sort of a a non decision here. Okay, let's see if I can do this here. Um, I say here that this the interpretation of this passage has long been viewed as a litmus test for belief in biblical inspiration and inerrancy and for Christ's virgin birth. So. If you believe Isaiah 7.14 is about Jesus, then you're good. 
if you don't believe it's about Jesus, then you must be a liberal. That's sort of, sort of, it's been sort of a watershed passage. I'm not sure that it really should rise to that level. Uh, let's see if we can't under, understand that. It's obviously an important verse, uh, but whether it rises to that level is a, is a good question. So let me read the passage, and we'll see if we can't uh, tease through it. You might want to open your Bible to it, because we're actually going to make some appeals outside of those five verses, especially in chapter 8. Okay. Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Okay, this is Isaiah speaking to Ahaz here. Uh, Ahaz is is a, they're about he's about to be overrun. He and the uh, folks there living in Judah, they're about to be overrun by two kings, uh, the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, or Samaria, and then also the king of Syria, or Damas- king of Damascus. Um, and these two groups are sort of trying to bully Ahaz into joining them because Assyria, this massive ancient Near Eastern superpower, is barreling towards them and is is almost certain to overrun them unless they band together. And so, so uh, these two these two northern kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria say, hey, we need help from you, Judah, because let me tell you, once they get through with us, they're coming through for you. So we need to band together to to stop Assyria. Judah says no, and it actually rises to the level of of, of warfare between those countries because they won't do it. So it's actually a, kind of an interesting scenario. And Ahaz is very... Very concerned, Ahaz does not believe Judah can survive a war uh, with these two countries. He's he's certain that the, that Judah is going to be destroyed, and he's in despair. He calls out to God for help. Uh, Isaiah comes and says, "You're doing the right thing. Don't join these two kings. God does not want you to do that. And I know you're nervous about that, but I'll give you a sign. Okay." Make the sign as big as you want. We can give you, we can get you, we can give you a sign that God is actually with you and He's on your side. Ahaz says, "No, I'm not going to do that." Real sort of a hyper pious kind of response, and, I, and Isaiah responds here, "Okay, here now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? The Lord Himself will give you a sign." Even though you said, no, I'm going to give it to you anyway. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Word means God with us. It's actually, a, it's actually three Hebrew words, im, with, manu, us, el, God. So he, they'll call him God with us. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before he knows... Enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. The land of the two kings that you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. And he will bring the king of Assyria. Okay, so the answer is there's going to be 
a sign. The sign is there's going to be a child born before that child gets to be of age, before he's able to tell right from wrong, probably until that child reaches the age at which he actually speaks for himself, probably age 12 or so, but it's that's a little bit unclear, but probably what is meant here. By the time that happens, these two kings that you dread so much are going to be wiped out. They, they will no longer be a threat. And that, in totality, is the sign. Okay. Now, many look at this and say, aha, this must be a reference to Jesus because... Verse 14 is quoted in Luke, right, of about Jesus. Okay, so what, what are the arguments in favor of seeing this as prophetic of Jesus' birth? Well, the term that's used here, Alma, sorry, I put that in Hebrew there, but Alma, A-L-M-A-H, I guess you could put, is not strictly used of virgin. However, it is the most likely term to be used in reference to a virgin. What I mean by virgin is a young woman who has not had sexual relations. Okay, The, the term can simply mean a young woman in general, someone of marriageable age, but not, not really saying anything about her, her, her sexual status. Uh, uh, but it is the most likely term to be used for uh, for a virgin. And, in fact, the term that's used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, done about three centuries before Christ, actually uses a Greek word that means virgin. Okay, so uh, there's obviously a, an understanding here that this word means virgin, not simply young woman. Okay. And, and this is important to think in terms because the, because remember the Jews don't, don't like the story of Jesus, right? Or they as much as they don't like it, but they don't like the implications of it for the Christian faith, and so they would not be wanting to promote uh, any sort of Christian doctrine. Uh, so you would think that they w- would not, you know, be bending towards. Uh, a Christian interpretation, but here it is. This is a, this is their understanding even before a Christianity was even on the map. Okay, so this proves that it's got it's a it's a it's an ancient tradition. The context of Isaiah is that of giving a sign, which normally is a miracle. Not always, uh, but uh, often, and usually at least an unusual event. A young woman having a baby is not unusual. But a virgin having a baby is really unusual. Okay. The name Emmanuel seems unequivocally to reference the incarnation. Uh, the, the, the alternative is that the child born in chapter 8, Meher Shalel Hashbaz, is Emmanuel, and you say, well, that's not Emmanuel. Uh, somebody else. Okay. The broadened context of the house of David. Okay, so it said, Ahaz, ask for a sign. No, okay, well, I'm going to give a sign to the house of David. So not just to you, Ahaz, I'm going to give a sign to the whole nation, uh, suggests that that it transcends the local context, that this is something bigger than just something that's local. And most significantly, Matthew 1 22 and 23, uses fulfillment language to connect Christ's birth with Isaiah chapter 7. It shall be fulfilled, what the prophet said. Behold, 
the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. So all of that seems to suggest then that Isaiah 7 is sort of an airtight uh, prediction of the birth of Christ. But there's another side to this, and uh, we'll let you decide here. Um, and that is that this is something that is analogy of Christ's birth and, ver- and Isaiah's relationship with his own wife. Okay, let me see here. Let me start out by, uh, by offering some, something here from chapter 7. The local context implies a sign with immediate relevance for Ahaz and the historical house of David. It includes not only the birth of a child by a virgin, but also details of his youth, political affairs, and such. And so the sign is not just the birth of the child, but rather the fact that God is providentially going to remove the threat to Judah of conquest by the kings of Israel and Damascus within 12 years or so, which is exactly what happens. Okay? Number two, then, chapter 8, seems to identify the woman as Isaiah's wife, the child as Isaiah's son, the historical sacking of Damascus and Samaria before the child comes of age, and the emphatic conclusion that God is with us. Let me see if we can't pull this out. So after Isaiah writes all this information in chapter 7, the Lord says to me, take a large scroll and write it. Meher Shalal Hashbaz. <laughs> and I will call on Uriah the priest and Zechariah son of Jerebekiah as reliable witnesses for me. And so I went in unto the prophetess and she conceived and gave birth to a son and the Lord said to me, name him Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Okay. Before the boy knows enough to say my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria. And it sounds very much like the prophecy made in chapter seven. So after after you know, after after the prophecy is made in chapter seven, Isaiah dutifully says, Okay, I guess I need to have a son. So he goes in unto his 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 woman, his virgin, and they have a child. And before that child comes of age, the prophecy in, in Isaiah 7 comes true. The, uh, the wealth of Damascus and Samaria come to them. Okay? And the conclusion, if I, can, if I can come down here in verse 8 and 10, they will sweep over Jerusalem, swirling over it, passing through it, reaching up to the neck. Its outspread wings will cover the breadth of your land. O Emmanuel! Okay? So the conclusion of this matter, after this child comes and they see God deliver them, what's the conclusion? God is with us. Oh, Emmanuel, God is with us. Now, that's not the name of the child, per se, but the child then becomes the symbol of the fact that God, in fact, is with us. Same thing in verse 10. Devise your strategy. It will not be thwarted. Propose your plan. It will not stand because Emmanuel... God is with us, okay? And so the conclusion here seems to be, as, I, as Isaiah looks at the uh, uh, prediction in chapter 7, is that it's fulfilled uh, within the next decade or so, 
Now, the big question, of course, then, is how does Matthew then use fulfillment language for Jesus? Well, the fact that Matthew uses fulfillment language to connect the birth of Christ to the Isaiah prophecy, it is argued by proponents of this position, is inconclusive. Matthew routinely uses fulfillment language to signal the use of types and analogies. And uh, we could perhaps go to Matthew 2, same chapter, in fact, to find several of these. For instance, in chapter 2, verse 15, uh, you know, the, uh, Joseph and Mary and the child go down to Egypt and return, that it might be fulfilled. The prophecy in Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Israel, I, out of Egypt, I called my son. Well, if you look at uh, Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt, I called my son. It's a, it's, a narr- it's a narrative rehearsing of what happened during the Exodus. Okay, It's not a prophecy. It's a, it's a, it's a telling of the story. Say very, the very next verse is that, uh, uh, um, next couple of verses after that, we find that Herod actually says, okay, we're going to... Yeah, we're going to kill all the all the all the babies. See if we can't get this this one who is this king that he learns about from the the Magi, and so he kills a bunch of children in Bethlehem. And there's this weeping and wailing of the mothers, as you can anticipate. And what is that? It's a fulfillment of a prophecy. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping over her children and refusing to comfort be comforted because they are no more. Except Rama is not Bethlehem. It's a totally different town. Totally different time. Totally different women. Totally different children. Nonetheless, Matthew is able to make these connections to historical events in Israel's history. Okay? There's the Exodus. There's this event that takes place in Jeremiah. There's this event that takes place in Isaiah. And he connects them at least in terms of a pattern to the birth of Christ. And in all three of these occasions, he uses the language, and thus it was fulfilled. So this word fulfilled probably has a broader meaning than we tend to use for it in normal language. So, what my conclusion then is, the decision between these two options is not easy. Probably should not be used to establish orthodoxy. No, somebody doesn't think that that's about Jesus and Isaiah 7, it, it is not an absolute statement here that they're liberals and don't believe the Bible. Uh, it may be that, uh, but it's not a necessary conclusion. I will say this, though. No one can honestly look at the interplay between Isaiah and Matthew and fail to see that Christ is virgin-born, that God was so closely at work that it can be cl- concluded in both situations that God is with us, Emmanuel, and that in both contexts, a marvelous work of divine grace was in progress. So I, I think we can come at least to those conclusions. And so it does speak to the event of the virgin birth of Christ, though whether it is a direct statement of the virgin birth, uh, I'll, I'll leave open for you. Thoughts thoughts, and questions, comments on that one? That's a tough one at the end of the day. Yeah. That's a yeah. Lot to chew on. I was kind of when that boy had to be called at dinner. Yes. Actually, that that word means something like their plunder has come near, 
So basically, this this child is named. Okay, this baby's come. So those two kings are going to be destroyed, and that's his name. Where did you see something about the seed and the spoil? Is that the same? I don't know. I, oh, I'm looking at Matthew. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So Meher Shalal Hashbaz means their plunder has drawn near. So the so the idea is the destruction of Damascus and of and of of Samaria is about to happen. And so they that's the name they give to the child. These two kings are going to be destroyed. That's your name. Hey, come to dinner. Now it's now it's even worse. Talking to dinner. <laughs> so now. Having said all that, there is no doubt in any in any reasonable person's mind, anyone who's reading the scriptures carefully, that Christ is virgin born. So let there not be any hesitation at this point in, in suggesting that Jesus is virgin born. He is. Uh, the question is whether Isaiah seven says so. Okay, look at look at the the the, uh, the data here, and it's 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 so overwhelming. We're not talking just conception; we're talking birth, because that's what someone was pointing out in here, right? What's that? That it was a virgin birth, not just a virgin conception. I think one of these authors was making that distinction or that point. I guess I don't remember the the point here. Yeah, here. I mean the virgin conception. Actually, the virgin conception is the issue. Right now, but I think someone, one of these guys was talking about the well, the fact that birth being it was because right. remember Joseph said it, and yeah. he did not know her until. Right. Uh, but the miracle is not the virgin. The the miracle is the virgin right. conception. Uh, his the birth was rather ordinary. It's, there's no miracle with the birth of Christ per se. The miracle happened nine months previous, right? But it was certainly a virgin conception. Both per, both passages in Matthew and Luke call Mary a virgin and use the Greek word that can mean nothing else. Mary was a virgin. She had never had sexual relationships. Second, both passages specify further that Mary and Joseph had not yet consummated their marriage. Matthew 1.18, Jesus' mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found with child. Okay. Luke 1, Mary was pledged to be married to this man named Joseph and replied to the news that she was pregnant by saying this, how can this be since I have never been intimate with a man? There's no way I can have a baby. You know, biologically not possible here. I've never known a man. Both passages, Matthew and Luke, explain that the conception of Jesus was a creative act of the Holy Spirit. So Matthew 1, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Same thing in Luke. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so that the Holy One to be born inside of you from you will be called the Son of God. Both genealogies indicate that the baby's father was not Joseph. There's two genealogies, Matthew's and Luke's, and they're not the same. We'll talk about that in just a minute here. Matthew offers Joseph's genealogy. Luke offers Mary's genealogy. And both of them are worded in such a way, it's almost like the the author comes to the 
comes right up to the cusp of, of, of mentioning Jesus, and he sort of has to sort of work around his normal use of language because it doesn't work. Mathan was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Well, that's weird. Why didn't he just say Mathan was the father of Jacob, Jacob was the father of Joseph, and Joseph was the father of Jesus? Because he wasn't. So they decided to do this little roundabout thing. He was the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Same thing in Luke 3. It's a little bit different, but the effect is the same. Jesus was the son, so it was thought of Joseph, but the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, etc., etc. Okay, so both of these indicate here that he was not the son of Joseph, even though Joseph apparently, being the, uh, the good man that he was, apparently adopted him as his own. Uh, but... Uh, but uh, the wording is such that we're very it's very clear he was virgin born. Uh, there's a question here why these genealogies differ and uh, most recognize that Matthew give us Joseph's genealogy, his legal lineage, his right to the throne. And Luke offers Mary's genealogy with it, which is his biological lineage by not by coincidence, but by an act of providence, both parents trace their ancestry to David. They're both direct descendants of King David, but by different sons of David. It's a providential significance that Mary is the descendant of David according to a line that is not the line of the kings. If you remember back in Jeremiah 22, verse 30, the last of the Judahite kings, God puts a curse on him and says... Write this man off as if childless. Very careful wording here. Write him off as if childless. He's not childless. He actually has children. But write him off as if childless, a man who will not prosper, and none of his offspring will prosper or sit on the throne of David or rule anymore in Judah. This is a devastating statement. You know, I mean sort of, you know, runs off, rolls off the tongue here. But the Israelite hearing this would have been just devastated by this. The the kingly line of David is cut off. No more kings. Well, what about the promise? There's going to be a king of David on the throne forever. The Messiah is going to come. All hope, gone. (laughs) There's just no way. And so what what are we going to do? Well, actually, there is a way, and it's found in the genealogies. Fascinating bits of of the scriptures that we tend to rush past, right? What we find in Mary's genealogy is that there is going to be a son of David who will be on the throne of David forever. And it doesn't come through the royal line of Solomon. It comes through this lesser-known son, Nathan. And so Jesus is both biologically the son of David through Mary and also legally the son of David through Joseph, who apparently adopted him. So this is, I mean, this is just, it's just a, a fascinating little chapter here in the history of Jesus, how 
uh, how how the how the messianic I mean, Satan's probably just jumping up and down. I won! I won! Ha! Ah! The, 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 the the line is cut off. Oh, wow! I didn't see that coming. <laughs> and God's in heaven laughing because he he knew it was coming. So both of the genealogies indicate that the baby's father was not Joseph. During Jesus' youth, apparently, Jesus sort of mocked a bit uh, about uh, about his virgin birth. It was known when Jesus, in Luke 2, when they go to the temple, uh, this is when he's 12, right? This is when he becomes of age, you know? Uh, so, so he becomes of age, and they, they go down to Jerusalem together. They start back home. They think Joseph, Jesus is, you know, I guess with the other kids or whatever. Um, but then they realize he's not there, and so they have to traipse back to Jerusalem. And they find Jesus there, talking to the uh, to the chief priests and uh, and to the, the 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 doctors of the law, discussing with them the contents of the scriptures, probably mutually instructing one another there. And they say, his mother says to him, Mary says, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And here's David. Now, here's, here's Jesus' answer. Now, don't think of this as a snarky answer. Uh, it's, it's, I think here's a, it's a very wise and probably very humble answer that he gave here. Why were you searching for me, he said. <laughs> my father wasn't searching for me. No, I was about my father's business. An ever so gentle rebuke of Mary saying, you know, that Joseph's not my dad. I'm about my father's business. So I, I am concerned about what my parents think. <laughs> you know, I'm about my father's business. And, and, and Mary probably was like, wow. My little Jesus has grown up and he's become conscious of the fact that he's Messiah. <laughs> um, and it must have been quite a quite an interesting moment for her, uh, but certainly for him as well. In Jesus' teaching, the Jews began to grumble against him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I know I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me against, unless the Father who draws me sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets they will all be taught of God. Everyone who listens of the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. In other words, in a roundabout way, my father isn't Joseph. My father is God. Okay, so he's 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 pushing back. No, he you know I'm not the son of Mary and Joseph, the son of Mary, not of Joseph. My father is God. And then probably the probably the most perhaps poignant of these is the fact that Jesus' enemies sort of apparently knew the story of Jesus' birth to some degree. Maybe they maybe they heard Mary say, "No, no, really, I'm a virgin." And it maybe became the joke, you know. Maybe the joke of the town. She said she didn't, she didn't know a man she had a baby. Ha ha! You know that doesn't happen. So here in John eight eighteen, after Jesus appeals to his father for legitimacy, they ask him, "Where is your father?" If I if I can if I can put this in very common vernacular here, who's your daddy? 
uh, was, 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 is perhaps what is going on here. It implies that Jesus doesn't know who his father was. Just some guy. Some nameless guy. Same chapter. Jesus says to the Jews, you are doing the thing your fa- things your father does. Speaking of Satan. They, re- they reply to him, we're not illegitimate children. Perhaps implied, like you are. <laughs> At least we know who our father is, and that's the next seven verses later. The Jews answered, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan? Probably reflecting a local theory about where Jesus came from. Probably some Samaritan soldier was in town, and and uh, they think, okay, he must have, he must have assaulted Mary, or they had some little tryst, and so this is this is where Jesus came from. Okay, so so the fact that Jesus is born out of wedlock couldn't be hidden. There was no doubt, no doubt, a matter of much speculation. Wonder who wonder who his father is. Those verses seem to indicate this. It's possible, too, that Mary's insistence that she was a virgin circulated as well, eliciting scorn. Yeah, right. No doubt Jesus faced much ridicule for his virgin birth as he grew up. I saw that, and this is going to play into our, our next section here. Why? Because it... Some would say it's just a miracle. It, you know, there's a lot of miracles that happen with Jesus' birth. And so this is just one of them. And my response to that is, really? God would perform a miracle that is going to cause Mary and Joseph and Jesus a whole bunch of heartache going through uh, the next, you know, the next several decades? That, that seems like a weird miracle, Okay. A, a, a miracle that can't be believed that there was a, a that there's a there was a virgin birth that and, and everybody's making fun of him because of it. it seems like a strange miracle to do uh, for to, to perform if that's the only purpose is just to have a miracle there's a lot more I don't know more you know, sanctified miracles that we could we could come up with here Um and uh, but but no, this this miracle here is for some reason probably other than or more than just a miracle. Okay, so if any miracle at all, starting the next section, could have set Christ apart from his human brothers, it seemed odd that God would have chosen this one. For this reason, most Christian theologians conclude that there must be a theological reason for the virgin birth that exceeds just another miracle. That is to say that a denial of the virgin birth is not merely an exegetical error or an incidence of skepticism in the Bible about the Bible. The Bible says that he, he was born of a virgin. It is that, but it's more than that. So why is it that the virgin birth happened? Well, let's start first by giving a few reasons that are sometimes given that are probably the wrong thing. Okay. First... I'll start here with anthropological theories that men, or that, by that I mean males, are more sinful than women, or that men alone are carriers, are naive. I can, if I can put it bluntly, they're usually the product of people who didn't really pay attention in seminary and didn't really follow the discussion and sort of came up with the conclusion, oh, well... Yeah, if he if she had had if he had had a dad, he would have been a sinner. So Joseph must be the sin carrier. No, 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 no. That's that's not it at all. 
All persons, male or female, are infected by sin. Mary is no exception. It's not as though Mary had some sort of an immaculate conception herself. No, she was just an ordinary woman and a sinner, which is reflected in the fact that she says in, in her uh, prayer of uh, her, her prayer of thanks and praise to God, I rejoice in God my Savior. She recognizes that she's in need of a Savior as much as anyone. Except the uh, immaculate conception. Yeah. Uh, Not the immaculate reception. That's much much different. It's a very important moment in Pittsburgh Steelers history. (laughs) (laughs) I remember that one. (laughs) Yeah, that's the immaculate conception, yes. But that's not what happened. Mary was a, a sinner, and that being the case, as the Romans seemed to rec- the Romanists seemed to recognize, if Mary was a sinner, then Jesus would have inherited from her as well. So, so it's not as though Christ could have avoided the effects of sin by simply not having a male parent. Okay, that's a, that's a that's a. We're going to say that there's something like that happening, but that's too simplistic. Secondly here, there's a biological theory that was circulated in by M.R. Dehan. M.R. Dehan is the one who's responsible for Our Daily Bread. You're, you're familiar with that little devotional booklet? Um, and, uh, of course, that's very widely circulated. He was a man of uh, some significance here. Uh, and so he came up with this theory that he, he was a doctor, and he wrote a book here, The Chemistry of the Blood, a little booklet, really, and argued that since blood derives genetically independently of the mother, Jesus' blood is not human, but divine. Okay? So, I mean, there, there is, it is rather a, an interesting tidbit that, you know, a mother and a baby share blood for nine months, and yet when the baby emerges, that baby can have a different blood type than its mother, right? I mean, that's I, 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 it's rather fascinating. But his conclusion then is, aha, his blood came from God, and so he had supernatural blood, precious blood, that had something about its properties that made it extraordinary blood, and sort of feeds this Roman Catholic idea that this blood is magical, Okay. So that when you have the Eucharist and the uh, and the the priest blesses the elements, so that they become the flesh and blood of Christ, that it's actually something that's m- magical, sort of a pejorative term here, but it's going to magically give you grace and actually going to improve your standing before God. Okay, and so this idea is this blood is different than regular blood. Okay, what are the problems with this? Well, first, the theory is biologically incorrect. Well, it's true that the genetic coding of a fetus's blood, his blood type specifically, may differ from his mother's. She still supplies the substance of the blood and oftentimes does give the child her blood type. Half the time, right? The other half is dead. It's not as though a biological father can be wholly responsible for a child's blood. More importantly, though, this theory is theologically scandalous. If, in fact, Christ's blood is incompletely human, then his status as, like his brothers in every way, is compromised. 
This is an instance of the historical heresy known as Apollinarianism. We're actually going to go over those. I think you actually got them in your notes here on page 35. There's a list of the uh, 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 heresies concerning the doctrine of Christ. And you see one in here, Apollinarianism. It's the fourth one over. And the argument here is that Christ is not fully human. He's only partly human. And, of course, if that is the case, uh, then he is not fully human, and therefore his sacrifice on our behalf is really not very helpful to us. Is it 36? Yeah, 36. Okay. Yes, you're right. Okay. Unfortunately, this theory has had quite quite a robust life. Uh, within very conservative circles. Um, I don't know if any of you you remember the heresy of the blood that was connected with John MacArthur. Okay, apparently not. Okay. This was back in the 80s. He, uh, in 1986, World Congress of Fundamentalism, which met at Bob Jones University, passed a resolution that that implied that Christ's blood is is different than ours, better than ours, and is divine blood, and it's for that reason that it is very precious. And MacArthur sort of rather cautiously poked back and said, that's not right. <laughs> no, I, that's, that's not the way it is. Um, his blood is just regular blood. It's not magic blood. And... Yeah, there's a, a sort of a half the fundamentalist world descended on MacArthur at this point. This, I mean, it's to this day why MacArthur is sometimes thought of you know a little bit askance because of this event. Okay, uh, and uh, half the half the fundamentalist world came down on him, including those at Bob Jones University, for denying the value of the blood of Christ. And so, I mean, they just sort of pounded him that he didn't believe that Jesus' blood was precious. He didn't think that Jesus' blood was necessary. I mean, it, 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 this was just a, 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 fa- a story, a, a fairy tale that grew in, in magnitude. And you can still go online today and put in heresy, blood, MacArthur, and you can find oodles of material on this. Okay, And it was never really laid to rest. Uh Unfortunately, nobody, even though most folks at Bob Jones eventually came around, there was never an apology issue. And to this day, uh, Mark uh, MacArthur is thought of by many as a heretic uh, because of this incident. As as recently as 2000, Rod Bell put an article in Frontline Magazine, which is uh, a magazine that's associated with a pastor's group that's connected with Bob Jones uh, arguing this. Unfortunately, the heresy isn't MacArthur's. The heresy is the World Congress of Fundamentalism, Rod Bell. And unfortunately, it became rather ugly, a, a rather ugly chapter in the history of fundamentalism. Um, and at the end of the day... <laughs> MacArthur was the right one. He, he was he was the one defending orthodoxy at this point, and it's really it's really sad that uh, that you know the the movement of which I sort of emerged was responsible for doing that to him. It's very sad. Okay, so the reasons for the virgin birth are not because Mary is not a sin carrier 
or because Jesus needed, you know, special divine blood. There are two very good reasons, though, why the virgin birth was necessary. Since the union of a man and a woman in the production of a child produces not only his material but also his immaterial properties. This is what we're going to call the traducian theory of the propagation of souls. When mom and dad make a child, they don't just make a body, they make a person. Okay? Complete with all the components of personality. Okay? Since Jesus already was a person before he came to earth remember he's got a he's got a he's got a he's got an eternally pre-existent personhood that is divine he couldn't be born the normal way or well actually you've got a couple of problems he'd be schizophrenic there'd be two persons the person produced by Joseph and Mary and the person that comes from heaven so there'd be a schizophrenia. That, that, that's our major problem. But then we're also going to see that it does play in to this, the sin issue as well. So what we have, the reason it seems that the virgin conception is, is here is because he needed to have an impersonal humanity so that his person could be imported in, onto a humanity that was impersonal without a person. Okay, why is this necessary? One, A, the virgin birth was necessary to preserve Christ's singular personality. Were Jesus to have been the product of natural procreation, then the intrusion of his divine person from eternity in heaven upon that product would have created a schizophrenic monstrosity. Two persons vying for control of one body. Only by bypassing the normal procreation process through the virgin birth could Jesus avoid this problem. With Chalcedon as our guide, Christ is one person, two natures. This is a sort of a rubric in history that's uh, that's uh, sort of been drilled into uh, just about anybody who's gone through Bible college. Jesus Christ is, is one person, two natures. Not two persons, two natures. One person, two natures. Secondly, then, the virgin birth was also necessary to preserve Christ's sinlessness, but not in the way we just talked about on the last page. As we shall note below under our discussion of the imputation of Adam's sin, the sin nature is passed from Adam through the human race by inheritance through conception. Had Jesus been born through normal means, he would not only have had a dual personality, he'd be schizophrenic, but also he would have had a sinful personality because Joseph and Mary could have produced nothing else. He would have inherited original sin and would have himself needed a savior. And so, he had to be, Mary had to produce an impersonal humanity. It should be noted that sin is predicated not of natures, but of persons. A body doesn't commit sins. A person commits sin. He might commit a sin through the body, but the body doesn't commit sins. The person commits sins. So only beings with personal natures are capable and capable of and liable to sin. As such, Jesus' impersonal humanity derived from his mother, while real and even vulnerable to the effects of sin, was not itself sinful. It was just an impersonal body and thus incapable of sin. 
Instead, the impersonal human nature produced by Mary was occupied by an alien person. No, not from another planet here, but from somewhere else, from heaven in this case. The alien and impeccable personality of God himself, the second person of the Trinity. So these two are these two reasons seem to be the reasons why why Jesus was born of a virgin. Now there's no actual statement in scripture that says that. We're, we're, we are speculating to a degree, but we're sort of forced to this speculation because we're we're asking ourselves, why in the world a virgin birth? And you know, as and it seems to be really important. It's like everybody else, everybody writes the scriptures, knows it's really important and why it's important, but they don't say. Uh, and so it comes to us then to try and discern this. Why is it that Jesus was born of a virgin? And these two reasons seem to emerge as the most viable reasons why Jesus had to be born of a virgin. Any thoughts or questions on that? Makes perfect sense. Really? Okay. <laughs> well, glad to hear that. It's been drilled in us. I'm glad I came to that conclusion too, so I'm sure. What's that? I said, I'm glad I came to that conclusion so I can talk about No, it makes perfect sense. Okay, well, good. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Well, next week we'll start then in on the deity of Christ, and then we'll put it all together in what is called the hypostatic union. How is it that they. How is it that they merge without mixing? So, okay. Well, thank you for paying attention.